Once upon a time, when people in certain villages of Eastern Europe wanted to figure out what was the cause of their misfortune, they'd turn to the cemetery for a possible answer. They would unearth people. Coming up, Jacob Mikanowski tells us what he's learned about the traditions of Slavic Europe this time of year. Those walls between living and dead get a little thinner, get a little easier to transverse. In Ireland, they've also long thought of the changing season at Halloween as an open portal between this world and the next. The undead, the ghosts, the spirits, they come alive that night. Fintan O'Toole explains. We're still haunted by, but also accompanied by all the people who, who've gone before us. It's a very important part of Irish culture. Plus, listeners share their scariest encounters in Europe. Take my hand as we journey through a shadowy realm. It's a spirited Halloween edition of Travel with Rick Steves in the Hour Ahead. I'm not sure what 12-foot-tall skeletons and inflatable pumpkins on the lawn say about American culture, but there are some interesting Halloween traditions and stories from the old world that feed into superstitions and into the characters of gothic horror novels. In just a bit, we'll hear how supernatural creatures have a long history in Celtic Ireland. Today, no one says they actually believe in them, but you wouldn't dare do anything to upset them either. And listeners tell us about some of their most disconcerting moments when their European vacations took them closer to the netherworld than they had expected. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at how the undead have long been a part of the legends and lore of Eastern Europe. Jacob Mikanowski examines the history of the lands his Polish and Lithuanian ancestors come from in his book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land, where, it turns out, vampires have been found for centuries. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, yes, there's stories of vampires, but Dracula is not what we're talking about. What's the bigger picture about vampires in the context of Eastern Europe? Dracula was actually a man. He was a a Romanian ruler and a very violent and um, tough ruler. But there's a wider set of beliefs that kind of kind of got fused onto him, really fused on by, by a Western writer. But there are ideas of spirits of the dead that come back to haunt the living, bodies of the dead come back to prey on the living. And that is a very Eastern European set of concepts. So the dead are everywhere. You find them in the countryside, you find them under your house. If something's going wrong, maybe something's going right, but if something's going wrong, in a lot of part, this part of the world traditionally... You want to ask, are the dead involved? Usually the answer might be yes. There were cases where the plague would hit in even Yugoslavia, and it would be like, well, we have to find the dead body that's doing this, where they would unearth people. This is how the idea of vampires came to the West, is that um, doctors in the 18th century on that borderland between the Habsburgs, the Austro-Habsburgs, and the Ottomans, they moved that border down a little bit, and there would be plagues. And when there would be a plague, the villagers would freak out and dig up all the bodies and look for the culprit, look for the vampire. And the, and the word in Slavic is upir or upior. And then when they found a body that seemed too well-preserved, too alive maybe, too full of blood, you would stake it through the heart and try to neutralize that. But there was part of a whole wider set of beliefs. Oh. When people from outside saw this, your German, your Dutch doctors, they'd be like, this is strange. And they started writing about it. And, and writing pamphlets about it, and people would be like, this is really odd. This is really unusual. What is this about? 
What is this word upir? And that's how the West started hearing about this set of beliefs about vampires. That wasn't a codified thing. Different villages would have their different ways of thinking about it. So at it. this point, no fangs, no blood drinking, no, fangs, no, no, no harmed by the sun. No, and none of that is really traditional. All of that is more or less invented by a set of mostly English writers and French writers right. taking that basic template of spooky dead coming back. Some of the idea of the feeding on or preying on the vitality of living people. Some okay. of that's true, but well, not fangs, not draining. Okay, so historically, no. we'll, get, we'll forget about yeah. Brad, Vlad Dracula for now. Long before Dracula, uh, there was this idea of the dead who wouldn't die. That's right. And they just did their best to keep on living as they did before. That's right. For whatever reason, if they were buried improperly, if they maybe died in childbirth, if they were just really wicked or angry or somehow... They too much not. life force. They couldn't, d- death wasn't enough to kill them. They would just, you, you would die and then they would come back and they would kept bothering you. People who had such a, sometimes just jerks. People were like, oh, you can't put this person down. And then they're dead and something's going on. Something's happening. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe Vlad, maybe Jan is back. We have uh. to go back. We have to check in the ground, make sure that he's really dead. We have to maybe kill him twice. And you can do that with a stake. You can do that with a nail through the head. And you find this. You find this in archaeologists will find bodies that have been ritually killed, that were killed a second, like second, a second kill, time, killed a second decapitated time. or So, so these, staked, these are dead people that are haunting their, their loved ones after they're supposed to be gone. That's right. According to your book, you talk about how certain times these, these ghosts are more present than others. That's true. There are parts of the year when um, those walls between living and dead get a little thinner, get a little easier to transverse. Christmas-ish, that time when days are really short, when days are really, when it's really dark, and when you're not sure if you're going to successfully get from winter to spring. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous time. Uh, The Day of the Dead, which is a big thing in Mexico. That's a big thing, and it's a huge thing. All Souls Eve. All Souls Eve. November 1st, right? In Poland, November 2nd will be the day. Ah, okay. You do the day, not the eve so much. But uh, that whole week actually is a huge... But now, everyone goes to the cemetery. Everyone will take care of the, the grave. Will It's a huge thing in Poland, incredible how, how it's like Super Bowl for cemeteries, how much that cult is present. I've seen cemeteries where on certain days of the year they'll light candles on all of the Absolutely. tombs. And uh, All Saints Day is such a big holiday. It's such an outpouring, but very different from that. It doesn't have quite that celebration that it does in Mexico. No, it has yeah. a much more somber day, but a much more powerful day. And so that that goes back to that Catholic version of that older folklore. So this is something that does characterize Eastern Europe mm-hmm. more than Western Europe. Absolutely. And these are really, these are, it's a Slavic word, upior, and an idea that is part of folk culture somehow goes down into Greece and it doesn't quite get up to Estonia, but it's basically that whole part of the world had ideas of unquiet dead Dead the unquiet dead, yeah. that's a great term. And it's different from country to country. In your book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, you wrote how in Bulgaria, it's a shadow. And in Macedonia, it's a, a wineskin filled with blood. So, yeah, the idea there is that if you poke it, if you poke a vampire, all that blood will drain out because they're just kind of a like a blood balloon. And some places will believe that even inanimate things can act as, as vampires, can suck or drop things out of people. But it was a very pervasive at least before kind of 1900, a very pervasive way of looking at the world that things that are going wrong, things that are bad, things that are mysterious, 
horses from the dead have something to do with it, especially in the Balkans. But all the way, Poland had a lot of this, and it's not called vampire, it's called upiur. But those okay. words come back to the same source. Jacob Mikanowski is filling us in on Travel with Rick Steves on the creatures and customs found around Halloween, All Saints, and All Souls Day in the eastern countries of Europe. Jacob examines the region's history from several angles in his book, Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land. His website is jacob-mikanowski.com, and that's M-I-K-A-Nowski. We have just a couple minutes to, to discuss this, but I do want to hear a little more about Dracula, because he was a historic character. What's your take on Dracula? Oh, Vlad Dracula was a powerful warlord, a strong king, fought one of these countless border wars against the Ottoman Ottoman Empire, and those were brutal wars, Then, and you would have to show off how brutal you were to scare off the enemy. So he was known as the Impaler because he impaled all these defeated soldiers. And so a very a real person, person who fits in that history of Ottoman Christian conflict, but not a supernatural figure, and, you know, cruel on purpose. And that was a persona he created a, to be a more effective military to leader. To be a more effective leader and to be a more imposing leader and to, to frighten off actually a stronger army. But then that has nothing to do with the supernatural. It has nothing to do with these beliefs that are all village beliefs, that all have to do with people you know, and after they die, you wonder what they're thinking. Sometimes you wonder, are they jealous of me for being alive? Are they jealous? Are they in the ground? Or they resent the fact that I've taken over mm. their business. Are they going to come back and harm me? And those beliefs about people who are in your orbit, and when they die, they're still in your orbit. They're still in your imagination. You're still thinking about them. So let's talk for a few minutes just then about how death is treated across Slavic Europe, across Eastern Europe, because it is a reoccurring thing that there are unique ways for people to honor the dead. Uh, I was in Romania as a kid traveling, and I'll never forget... This grandpa's skull was on the mantle next to the fireplace. And I don't know, what. can you imagine what that was all about? Not really. That's very unusual. Because, because that you, was just an odd family then. Well, Romania's an odd place. Romania is not Slavic, but they have a lot of Slavic beliefs, and they have, they used to have a church that would have a Slavic liturgy. They get stuff from all over. But generally, you want to be very careful how you bury people. You want to be very sure that you bury people the right way. And sometimes it's very important how you get them out of the house. For instance, if you get them out through the front door, that's bad. Get them out through the window. Get them out some other way to make sure that the spirit follows them the right way. I would love to know why they kept the skull around. Yeah, that is so... I wonder, I wonder about working. that. But in Romania, I remember uh, there's a graveyard which is famous. It's All the tombstones are painted blue. And they've got stories of that person, how they died and what they were famous for and what they were beloved for in their life. And it's full of humor. It's, it's a joyful place, the cemetery, as you remember people. I think that's Chapant. That's up in that very traditional northern part that's so, such a beautiful part of Romania. And Did, the dead are so present in people's lives in a lot of those traditional societies. Yeah, yeah. yeah they really are. Uh, in uh, Estonia, there's a wonderful tradition of using a forest as a graveyard. Yeah, and I'll, I'll often go, and in new cities, I'll, I'll go and I'll just include in Romania, the beautiful cemetery in, in Vilnius. And Lviv, when you could visit Lviv, you can still visit Lviv, has an extraordinary cemetery that's Polish and that's Ukrainian and that's German, and everyone's together in this giant hillside park, and it's extraordinary to kind of go through. They are the city parks in a way because they, people have that idea that going to the cemetery should be like going to a park. So all of this attention on graveyards and, um, and the living dead, what about cremation? 
There's one place in Eastern Europe that loves cremation, and it's the Czech Republic. People get cremated, people, it's the dominant way of getting buried, and people will often even not claim the ashes. And it is maybe the most secular place in Eastern Europe. But just in Poland is maybe the most Catholic place you can go to. Czech Republic, which speaks a very similar language, is almost kind of a mirror image of Poland. People are so secular. It's almost kind of a post-Christian society. And they, on the absolute opposite spectrum, Poles love cemeteries, love burial, love that whole pomp and circumstance around it. Czechs, not at all. And it's a very different society, very different relationship to the dead. Jacob Mikanowski, thank you so much for joining us. Best wishes with your book, uh, Goodbye Eastern Europe, An Intimate History of a Divided Land, and appreciate having a better understanding of what vampires are all about. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Have you ever gone somewhere and suddenly get a creepy feeling something isn't quite right? Listeners tell us about their travel experiences, encounters actually, that suggested they'd bumped into something irrational and unexplained. That's in just a bit. But first, Irish journalist Fintan O'Toole helps us explore the old world, the one the ancient Celts and Druids suspected inhabits a realm beneath the green turf of Ireland. Journey into the supernatural side of Ireland with us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Through its long history of both superstitions and literature, the supernatural has long been a fascinating subject in Ireland. Ireland is home to stories of ghosts and banshees, fairies, vampires, and zombies. To bring a little Irish spooky to our Halloween season, we're joined by Fintan O'Toole. Fintan's joining us from studios at Princeton University, where he's a distinguished visiting lecturer in Irish letters. He's actually teaching a course at Princeton called Ghosts, Vampires, and Zombies in Irish Literature and Theater. Professor O'Toole, thanks for joining us, I think. <laughs> it's a real pleasure, Rick. And uh, hopefully we can, we can explore some of the dark side of the Irish imagination. Oh, man, the Irish have such a gift of gab, what do you call it, good crack, and to, to lace that in with some spooky is kind of exciting. First of all, does Ireland celebrate Halloween like we do in the United States? It's a funny business, Rick, because Halloween starts in Ireland. I mean, it, it's an Irish festival. It's a very, very old one. You know, it was a pre-Christian festival, which goes back to the idea of the end of summer, the beginning of winter, yeah. that sort of yeah. spooky place in between times. Yeah. And so there's this idea that you have this night where because time is neither one thing nor the other, it means that it opens up a portal where the undead, the ghosts, the spirits, they come alive that night. Undead. That's sort of a new concept to me. I've just been reading about this, and it sounds like an Irish thing, frankly, the undead. It's a the great undead. excuse to talk about something over a Guinness in a pub. Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot because we do have, I think, still in our society, even though it's a very modern society now, but there's still a strong sense of our connection to the dead, to our ancestors, uh, to people who went before us, you know, and this idea that the dead are never really quite dead, you know, they're, they're still part of what's around us. I think that's something that's quite important. You know, I'm, I'm a rationalist. I'm not a kind of, you know, a believer in all these things. But 
I think that idea that it's not just us, you know, that we're still haunted by, but also accompanied by all the people who, who've gone before us is a very important part of Irish culture. You find that when you travel. I mean, you're driving down a little road and all of a sudden it, it's it got a, a little um, hook to the left and then back to the right. And it made a detour around what, like one of these fairy castles or something. And they actually spent the money to deviate the road from an obvious straight line because there's a fairy castle there. This is absolutely true, Rick. You know, people think, oh, you're making this up. But if you ask people, do you believe in this stuff? They'll say, no. <laughs> but, it's but you don't take the risk, right? So It would so, be bad luck to be superstitious. Be, I, know, I mean, seriously bad luck, you know. And, and there is a wonderful... And this goes back to the 1930s, but I, I remember an Irish writer was writing a book about Ireland. He asked this old lady, he says, do you, do you believe in the little people? And the little people are, mm-hmm. you know, the fairies, the leprechauns, whatever you want to call them. And she says, I do not, sir but they're there. <laughs> and I think it's a fantastic answer, you know, which is, yeah. of course, you don't believe in them because we're good Catholics. We don't believe in that stuff. But just because we don't believe in them doesn't mean that, that they're not there. You know, of course they're there. You could be the, the greatest Catholic around, but you've still got woven into your DNA the pre-Christian sort of indigenous uh, yeah. pagan stuff going on. And so many of our Christian-based holidays, if people really dug into it, they're sort of incorporating a holiday that was already there. Absolutely. And, you know, so the the Irish story, the sort of very old story they told about who inhabited Ireland, they said there was this race, kind of super race of very beautiful, uh, you know, almost like Marvel superhero people called the Tuatha de Danann, and they were the god people. And then the Irish come in, right, they come to the island, and there's a, eventually a big battle between them. And at the end of the battle, what they do is they don't exterminate each other. They decide to divide it up, and they say... The Tua de Don and the God people are going to have the underground. Yeah. And the Irish are going to have the overground. Oh. And so it's like there are two sets of people who, yeah. who inhabit the islands. Now, this is a very, very old story. But it, it's still sort of partly there, you know, this idea that there's another kind of people who, who inhabit the place. And we don't believe it literally, but it's a way of talking about the fact that, again, you've got, oh, you know, these, these ancient burials, you've got these tombs, you've got all that. Yeah, the roots. Ireland yeah, has yeah. the most fascinating, mystical, never-to-be-fully-understood roots, and they're there whether you like it or not. They'll never be understood, but they, they sort of permeate uh, so much of the culture. And isn't that wonderful? You know, uh, some of this stuff got Christianized, so one of the things that people in Ireland really still believe in are, are holy wells and holy springs, right. you know, and... They all have a saint's name, you know, there'll be St. Mary or St. Patrick or whatever, but you realize that these are water spirits, you know, which go back yeah. for thousands of years. And it's beautiful. And as a traveler, you pull off, you stop, you walk over to the, the thing that's on, you know, it's in your little list of things to see and do around this town. And it's a holy well. And you think, well, I don't really buy that, but um, I'm going to embrace it. And to think that people have stopped here and checked it out for centuries, that in itself makes it worth a stop. Exactly, exactly. I, I think you put it brilliantly. I think that's exactly what you feel, you know, is that this is part of something yeah. which has, has given a meaning to this place. And you probably know as well, because you come across these holy ones, they usually have a holy tree, you know, a fairy tree, whatever they call right. it. And people just do this thing of they tie little ribbons or rags to the tree. And you tie it because you're, you're making a wish. You, yeah. you want something to happen. And this is not Disney stuff, you know, it's not fantasy. It's it's actually often very um, personal stuff that's going on in people's lives. And they feel somehow... It's kind of a tip that, of the hat. Yeah, if they do it, you know, it's it's a hope. It's a, you know, an aspiration. It's a comfort. You know, so, so these things still do enrich people's lives. And, and what's wrong with that? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fenton O'Toole, and he's guiding us through some dark shadows of the supernatural in Irish literature and myth right now. 
Fintan has been called one of Ireland's leading public intellectuals. He writes a column for the Irish Times. Right now he's a visiting lecturer at Princeton University, and uh, he's actually teaching a course called Ghosts, Vampires, and Zombies in Irish Literature and Theatre. Fintan is also the author of the bestseller We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. We'll talk to Fintan about that work on a show in December. You'll find links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, Fintan, I was actually looking at your course syllabus here, and if I was a student, I would think, man, this is going to be an interesting course. And I was just struck by every week you've got you've got a topic for your Princeton course on ghosts, vampires, and zombies in Irish theater and lit. Take a minute or so for each of these weeks just to say what, as students, we'll be talking about. I think your first week is dedicated to political violence and the roots of Irish Gothic. Yeah, so this was um, really a way of trying to introduce them to... I mean, the Gothic is, you know, it's everywhere. It's, you know, all over Europe and, and, and America. What do we well, mean so by it, that, what, first of all? What do we mean by Well, yeah, so, so uh, Gothic is one of those words that gets used, and it, it sort of describes stories that are usually set in some sort of wild, you know, mysterious place. So you know, ancient castles, wood, woodlands, mountains, all that, you know, and then involve... The supernatural, very often involving horror. Does this go back to the Romantic age of the late 1800s? Exactly, yeah. So the Gothic as a as a genre really does go back to, to the Romantics, you know. Yeah. But it lives today. It really does live. I mean, it's it's a dominant genre, isn't it? Yeah. It's all over. If you, you want know, to sell books, you, you, that's going to do yeah, it, you know. It's huge, you know. And uh, But there is a, a strong kind of Irish um, tradition. If you were in England in the, in the 19th century and you were, were reading English novels, you're probably going to be reading Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and George Eliot. And these are all very social novels. They write about society. But if you're like a, a dark, unsocial person with a, yeah. that is a, <laughs> well, what we think of as a goth today, yeah. and you wanted to read a book from that genre, you might find it. A, might well be Irish yeah. because, you see, the thing in Ireland is very hard to write about society, right? Because it's a, it was a very divided society. It was Protestant, Catholic. It was landowners against peasants. You know, you had a, the famine in the, in the mid-19th century. It's very difficult, actually, to write about society. So a lot of the fears, the anxieties, the, the ways that you're trying to explore the mind, a lot of this gets put into things like vampire stories, you know. Okay. So you can use that as a, as a tool for understanding. Yeah. How about the next week we're going to be talking about uh, Protestant terror? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so most of the writers of these supernatural stories strangely enough although you associate the supernatural with catholics yeah. you know the catholic majority but actually the writers are nearly all protestant and part of the way they're using it is they're they have a lot of anxiety they're a minority in a culture which is different. Now, don't we have to remember, uh, Fintan, that back then English culture kind of dominated the area around Dublin and you have this idea of beyond the pale, right? Exactly, exactly. And beyond the pale would be beyond the realm of English civilization. Yeah. Out there where they're... I mean, up to the mid-19th century, most people in Ireland speak Irish. There's a totally different language, not connected to English at all. That's their language. They are mostly the Catholic poor, so that's the majority culture. And then, you know, if you're a kind of Dublin professional or intellectual or whatever, you know, you're kind of looking out on that with fascination, but maybe also with a certain kind of fear, right? Because it's it's different. And so what, what happens with a lot of these kind of stories is that there are ways of trying somehow to deal with those anxieties, you know. Huh. And and the great thing about these gothic stories, they can be ridiculous, they can be over the top, they can be all those kind of things, but they allow you to explore extreme states, you know, terror, transformations, 
people turning into bats, <laughs> people sucking your blood, whatever it is. But you can say almost anything in a gothic story, you know, whereas if you try to put it in a social novel, it's just, you know, it's just nonsense. Well, so that's so interesting. It's a chance for a reasonable, unsuperstitious person to have permission to delve into those areas they might be fascinated or embarrassingly curious about. Absolutely, absolutely. And this includes really everything then can go into these things. Yeah. You know, they're they're like these sort of uh, attractor, you know, they just attract everything to them. So all the concerns about religion, which of course is huge yeah. everywhere, yeah. but particularly in Ireland, the 19th century, sexuality, manliness, womanliness, politics, land, you, you name it, it's going to get in there, you know. And it's it makes them fascinating. And it's actually, they're great for students, love them because... You can pick up a thread and you can sort of follow it through and you can try to think about how's this being dealt with. I want to take this class. Now, the next week, it's about the undead and the theme, I believe, is Bram Stoker's Dracula. So here we have a a real example of this literature from that romantic age. Uh, I believe he wrote that back in the last years of the 1800s. Stoker was from Dublin. It set the, the template for what we think of as vampires in movies and literature to this day. Very much so, you know. And most people, and it's quite reasonable, they don't think about it as an Irish story because right? it's no. in Transylvania and yeah. Jonathan Harker, who's the, you know, the guy who goes out to visit Dracula is English and you don't want to set it in Ireland. But there's a lot of Irish anxiety in it. Uh, people know the story. It's really fascinating for its time because religion is such a big issue, right? Yeah. So what you get in Dracula, what makes it such a great book and so fascinating is that it brings together, so how do you kill Dracula? Science is not enough, right? So you've got scientists in the book. They're very rational. They're trying to think about this. And they think these vampires don't exist. This is nonsense. And then when they realize they do exist, they don't know what to do. How do you how do you deal with the undead, right? And so they have to bring in Van Helsing, right? And Van Helsing comes in and he's the the Dutch guy. And but also Van Helsing is a Catholic. Okay. Van Helsing uses the uses the host. He uses the the real symbol of Catholicism, right? It's actually a sort of fantasy of bringing these two sides of Ireland, the Protestants and the Catholic, which are very much at war, you could bring them all together to fight the bigger enemy, right, which is the, the vampire. Right? You know, I, so, I never thought about that. But if I think about these scary stories, it, it, sometimes it has a priest with a crucifix who's silhouetted exactly. against a thunderclap and a bolt of lightning. So there's a lot of Catholic imagery in it. As you say, Jonathan, initially, the peasants in Transylvania give him a crucifix, and that's what saves yeah. him from being devoured by Dracula. And then Van Helsing uses the host, and there's all this imagery. And really, what he's using this as a story is tries to kind of make a almost a hopeful political message, which is that if you brought together these two streams, the sort of rational Protestant scientific one and the older Catholic, maybe superstitious one, whatever, you could bring them together and they could make sense yeah. of things and they could fight off this terrible evil. <laughs> and this idea of a vampire, it predates Bram Stoker. I mean, what was the indigenous sort of Irish vampire? It goes way back, doesn't it? Oh, it goes way back, yeah. So there are vampire stories. There, I don't think what you have in Ireland is what we think of as the classic vampire thing, which is as if a vampire bites you, right. it can no, turn no. you into a vampire. But you certainly have this terror of the undead rising from their graves who can come and, and devour you. And live with you even though you don't want them living with you and, and get exactly. revenge uh, and sleep with your wife or whatever. You have these seductresses, you know, female characters as well. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Banshee, you know, uh, which is a slightly different thing, but the Banshee as this sort of eternal old crone figure who comes to basically tell you you're going to die. 
there was a lot of belief in a figure they called the fetch, and the fetch is a kind of doppelganger figure, so you could be walking down the road and you see yourself coming towards you. <laughs> Don't you're going to give if, me nightmares now. <laughs> if that happens to you, Rick, I've really bad news for you. If that happens, I'm afraid your days are numbered. Right? Oh, you know? no. And we can sort of laugh at these things a bit, but, but yeah. you know, people really very profoundly believed in them. And, of course, they were ways, again, of trying to deal with things they didn't understand. We've got all sorts of theories about psychology and madness and all those sort of things. Mm. But, you know, these are people who are trying to deal with altered psychological states, with oh. trauma, with God knows what, you know. And they tell stories, they, they see figures, they, you know. We've got to see it are... in the context of its time to understand Absolutely. why it's there. That's such an interesting topic. Fintan O'Toole is taking us into the supernatural side of Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Fintan writes a twice-weekly column for the Irish Times where he's the literary editor. He's teaching a course at Princeton University on ghosts, vampires, and zombies in Irish theatre and literature. He's also written the book that accompanies an exhibit at the National Museum of Ireland on a history of Ireland in a hundred objects. You'll find more about our guests each week at ricksteves.com radio. I'd like to just finish, wrap up our conversation about the Irish otherworld as we celebrate Halloween right now with describe some of the, uh, maybe just a single supernatural character that might show up around that campfire with the help of a full moon and some homemade poteen, that good old-time Irish potato moonshine. What might appear? So what might appear could be, depending on your state of inebriation, you could well encounter the little people, so-called. Uh, although you didn't call them little people because you had to call them the good people. So my grandfather, for example, who lived with us, was from this world, you know. He would not talk about the fairies or the leprechauns. He would say the good people. Why do you say the good people? Because maybe they're not good people. They can be malevolent if you get it, you know, if you if Why you make an them. enemy you don't need to? Exactly, you know. <laughs> so you call them the, the good people. And do you want to encounter them? Yeah, they're fascinating. They're not so little. I mean, usually, traditionally, they were just like, you know, the same size as us or maybe even bigger. Yeah. But they might lead you underground. They might lead you into, so you'd pass through a portal and suddenly you would be in a magnificent hall with, you know, all these beautiful people there, fantastic drink, endless amounts of drink, lovely food. And you would be there. You'd have a great night. You'd come out and it would be 20 years later. 30 years later, maybe a hundred, you know, you go back to the village and everybody you knew would be gone. You would have gone into a different time and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. The Rip Van Winkle story, I think, maybe comes somehow out of this kind of yeah. Irish thing, you know, but there, there was that very, so it was both a kind of very attractive idea, you know, you would get out of this world, but also the sort of rather haunting idea that time would have passed by mm. the time you came back, even though you, you think you'd only been there a night, you'd actually been there uh, for years. Well, Fintan O'Toole, thank you for that as we get tuned in to Halloween from an Irish point of view. And also thank you for your teaching and for sharing with the general public your book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland. Thanks a lot, and uh, be careful out there. It's dark and it's scary. <laughs> I will take your advice, Rick, and thank you very much for having me on, and uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to you and your listeners. May you be safe, Bonino, without a care as evening ends, and always mind, Bonino, you've left a footprint. Fintan O'Toole's book, 
We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland, was named the best nonfiction book of the year by the Irish Book Awards in 2021. It's now available in paperback in the U.S. and will be the subject of our next conversation with him in a few weeks. Up next, listeners tell us about wandering into places in London, Paris, Prague, and even Erfurt in Germany that suggested they were brushing up against another realm. Adventures in haunted Europe are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Up next, let's take a deep dive into the archives at Travel with Rick Steves. Several years ago, we asked listeners to tell us about scary encounters they had on their European vacations, and their stories did not disappoint. So we thought we'd uh, dig them up and hear them again. If you'd like to share your travel stories with us, our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Jack's on the phone in Sussex, New Jersey. Jack, thanks for your call. Yeah, actually, uh, we were on a tour in England, and uh, one of the towns we stopped at was a little town called Stanton, and we went to a church called St. Michael's Church, and what I like to do is sometimes I take my, my compass with me, and what that does is it looks for electromagnetic fields, which are kind of like creepy areas. We checked out the graveyard in the church, and we found some strong magnetic fields in one corner of the church. So we went there, and it was like, you know, you just got this, like, real creepy feeling when you're in that area in the in the church. Really? Yeah. It was so pretty, it, it, it registered on your meter, and you could feel it in your gut? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are you, like, just a normal person, or do you have this happen to you all the time? No, I, I'm just a, just a normal person. We uh, usually like to take our little compass around. I don't have a regular uh, magnetic meter, but I just take my compass, and what was nice, I was trying to show the other people on the tour about how to do it, too, so they really got into it, and everybody had a compass. They were starting to check out different areas. So let me so get forth. this straight, Jack. You got a, just a regular compass, and you walk right. around, and it will act erratic when there's something uh, creepy going on. Yes, exactly, because what it'll do, it'll point away from magnetic north and go to an area of high magnetic intensity. And what might that be? Usually it's an area of a paranormal uh, okay. area where you may have a ghost or, or now, some other type of paranormal activity. I don't know if you realized this, uh, Jack, but you were at uh, a church dedicated to St. Michael, and you can conclude when you have a church dedicated to St. Michael that there was some pagan activity there before Christianity because when the Christians came in a thousand years ago or something, they would make a point to put St. Michael on that spot because he was the saint that would take care of pagan spirits. Well, that's pretty weird. That's, yeah, so. that's creepy right there. <laughs> Anytime you find a church of St. Michael, you can pretty much predict there is a Stonehenge kind of thing underneath if you dig down there. Well, that would make sense then why I was getting high magnetic readings then. No, I'm, I'm, getting, kind of, I'm getting kind of creeped out right here. It's just yeah, that's it's so cool, exciting. Huh? You know, that reminds me once way back when I was a, a minibus tour guide. I would run around Britain with eight people on a minibus. We'd never know where we are going to sleep tonight. And we checked into this one kind of a guest house on a hill, sort of in a windy sort of netherland. And it was a cheap place, and we needed a room. And I didn't have reservations for my tours back then. We checked in, and it was on a ley line. You know, the ley lines are the right. sort of lines that connect all the Stonehenge-type sites and the St. Yep. Michaels and the pagan things, and they crisscross England. And some people think they brought the stones all the way to Stonehenge by taking advantage of the energy along these ley lines. Well, we checked into this guest house, and all of us went to our rooms, and it was so odd. Within, like, five minutes, we were all out in the hallway 
thinking, we can't spend the night here. This is too creepy. And like mm. a bunch of cartoon characters, we all grabbed our bags, ran back to our bus, loaded it up, and just drove out of there. We vacated. It was so wow. it was so creepy. So yeah, this part cool. of England is that way. And if you go to Glastonbury, that's sort of the capital of all this. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we were we were in that area, but that was the only uh, Saint Michael's Church was the only one I really got a real good uh, reading from. I found a new use for my compass now. I'm going to go to Saint Michael's Church and see if it quivers in a creepy kind of way. Yeah. What you want to do is before you go into the churchyard, check your your north reading so you make sure that you know which way your north reading is. So if the needle does move out of the north, you'll know. But uh, it was oh, pretty man. cool, and sometimes it'll actually go around. You wouldn't want to do this alone. You take your travel partner with you. <laughs> yes, and that's okay. for sure. That's for sure. Take Jack in New Jersey, you. thanks a lot, and, and, and stay safe. Okay, okay. thank bye you, bye. Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Anne's on the phone in Elwood Park, Illinois. Anne, thanks for your call. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, do, were you listening to Jack's story? I there? was. It sounded very creepy. Wow. What is your What is your uh, creepiness overseas? Uh, well, my friend and I two years ago were just hanging around in Prague at about eleven o'clock at night, and we know that the city is a little bit haunted with ghosts here and there. So we were just taking pictures, just goofing around, and all of a sudden she takes a picture of me and she goes, "There's something in the background." So I turned around behind myself to see if there was anything there, and there was. Absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no people around, nothing. We look at the picture, and we zoom in onto it, and there's these two figurally-looking things. It looks like blurs. But then we zoomed in a little bit closer, and one of them would look like a hunched-over person, and the other one actually had this blurred-out face to it. And we just, we just stopped where we were. We're like, oh, my goodness, we are in Prague, and there's ghosts around us. We just, needless to say, we just went home right afterwards. We were a little bit freaked out. <laughs> so now, you actually have this image on I your... I do. I should send it to you. If you email it to us, we'll, we'll put it on our website. Okay, definitely. Yeah. That and is cool. The zoomed in part two, I'll show you. So we will share it with our listeners who are bold enough to go to our website and check good. that out. Wow. Perfect for Halloween. Behind you, there was two blobs that turned out to be faces. Yes. Where One. were you in Prague? Um, we were right in the middle of the town square. Town square, because that's where the Jan Hus statue is. Yeah, exactly. And Jan Hus was that reformer who was burned at the stake 100 years exactly. befo- before Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. And every time I look at Jan Hus, and I, I think of the flames engulfing his body, yeah. and I think of the national pride the Czechs have for exactly. a man who translated the Bible into their language so they could read it direct without uh, monks and priests uh, you know, editing it for them and so yep. on. And I just think... There's some spookiness there. There's there some really stuff is. going on. Now, one thing i got to ask you, had you consumed any of the Czech beer before this <laughs> happened? Not that night. Because <laughs> it's... previous nights we did. You know, the Czech beer, it hits your table like water exactly. does here. It's very and, strong. And it's very strong. I, for is. years, I went to the Czech Republic traveling around, and I'd have a beer at lunch, not because I order it, but because it's sort of the default. That's what they give you. Yeah. And I noticed my productivity after lunch was way down. <laughs> And I, I never put it together until later I learned that the beer was uh, so much stronger. And I, I had what I called Czech knees. So if, uh-huh. if you're seeing funny faces and it's after you've had some of that Czech beer, I think you've got to discount that. But you, exactly. did, it, you did it alcohol-free. No, alcohol-free on that night. Are you going back to Prague and uh, see if you can meet your friends again? Hopefully sometime soon. Um, All right. Hopefully one day we'll see some other ghosts around. Yeah, it's a great city with or without ghosts. But I know Prague is one of the more haunted places in Europe. Yep. Take care. Thank you. you okay, too. bye-bye. Thanks, bye.
From ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night. Our Travel with Rick Steves listeners are sharing some of their spookiest travel memories from their old-world European vacations right now at 877-333-RICK. Jenny's on the line in Houston. Jenny, are you okay? I am. How are you, Rick? I'm getting kind of scared. Everybody's had these stories, (laughs) and I just hope they're not coming this way. But uh, do you have something you can share about scary things in your travels? I do. My husband and I were in Paris a couple summers ago, and we went to visit the catacombs. And, you know, there's a tunnel that you walk through before you enter the actual room with the bones and the skulls in it. And right when we got to that entrance, there was a sign in French that warns you that you're about to enter the Empire of the Dead. And I kind of made a mocking, ooh, scary noise. Okay, let me interrupt you here because maybe our listeners don't quite know what the catacombs are, but way back in the French Revolution times and Napoleon times, they decided that graveyards were not hygienic and they decreed that all of the graveyards around the churches would be emptied and turned into public spaces and they would move all of the bones to the old quarry uh, tunnels under the streets of Paris. So they spent a whole generation, really, carting all these bones under the streets, and they're stacked neatly, and it is literally millions of skulls and tibia and fibia. And today, it's an attraction where tourists can go down this long, long, long stairway and then walk through these ancient quarry tunnels surrounded by millions of bones from unearthed cemeteries of all the churches in Paris. Now, with that in mind, you saw the arch announcing that what was happening, and you can carry on with your story. Sure, that the Arch was announcing that you were about to enter the Empire of the Dead. And so, like I said, I I said, ooh, scary, and my husband took a picture of me, and we crossed the threshold, and immediately my husband's flashlight popped and went completely dark, and my flashlight went out. And we fiddled with them for a couple of minutes, but couldn't get them to come back on, So we stepped back out into the tunnel, and I kind of said, oh, I shouldn't have been irreverent. I'm so sorry. (laughs) My flashlight immediately came back on, and we remained very reverent throughout the rest of our tour in the catacombs. And like you said, the skulls and the tibias and fibias are right there. You could practically touch them. Um, But the scariest part to me was when we were working on our travel blog, we uploaded that picture. And to this day, when you visit our travel blog, that picture just shows up as as a red X. You can't see it at all for some reason. The moment all of the spirits of all those bones of the permanent Parisians put your camera in the dark. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when you're down there, you you can almost smell the bones, can't you? And it's very cool and crisp down there in oh, the city. You know, you've heard of Plaster of Paris. They have all yes. this uh, white, chalky stuff, because that's what they were uh, mining, apparently, or quarrying. And when I go into the catacombs for the rest of the day, my feet are caked in this white stuff. And That's right. It's all over your shoes. And you, you remind yourself, you've entered and survived the empire of the (laughs) dead. On my very first time, I went there as a teenager, and that was before it was very sophisticated, and you could just basically go down there and uh, rummage around. And I remember as a crass, uh, thoughtless teenager, (laughs) I picked up a skull. Oh, wow. And I looked at it, and I could do that Hamlet thing, you know. And I I came (laughs) just moments from putting it into my little day bag and, and, and stealing it. And I thought, this would be so cool to have a skull on my mantle when I get home. And I decided not to. 
just because I thought it would, it would spook me, it would haunt me, it might even uh, oh, curse yeah, me, you know, it could curse you. Uh, and then I went back a couple years later, and I had my nerve up, and I was going to actually do it, and then all the skulls were wired in place, and they wouldn't let anybody do that, and they had guards checking your bags as you left the place, so apparently they had some people stealing skulls. And that reminds me a, a little story of my own, uh, Jenny. I was in Romania once visiting friends, and this was during the Soviet era, and uh, I had to shuttle around every night to a different home. And in Romania, they have a tradition of unearthing the graves of their dead grandparents after wow. a couple of generations, and they literally put the skull that's been rotted clean, you know, on their mantle. So you're in somebody's living room, and right next to the TV and, and over by the magazines on the mantle, you've got Grandpa's skull sitting <laughs> on the mantle. And I thought, that is a unique, a unique tradition you find only in Romania. Wow, that is incredible. Hey, well, when people go to Paris, would you recommend that they enter the Empire of the Dead? Absolutely. It's so fascinating to see the way the skulls have survived the ages. Some are green, some have holes in them. It's just really fascinating. And with one caveat... Respect the dead. Absolutely. All right, Jenny in Houston, thanks for your scary call. Thanks, Rick. Great to talk to you. Take care. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Jerry's on the phone in Minneapolis. Jerry, thanks for your call. Well, my wife and I are relatively new travelers, but uh, we were in Paris two years ago and went to the catacombs. Both of us uh, are claustrophobic to start with. (laughs) So So you were just... probably wasn't the best place in the world to go. Now, these were the same catacombs Jenny was just talking about, right? Rue Denfer, I believe it That's is. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. We found it absolutely amazing. Pretty much experienced the same thing. Just It was amazing to see the mortality that's been stacked artistically throughout the catacombs. And it's interesting to note that all the dead from each church is collected together, and there's a thoughtful little plaque that says, these are the remains of the parishioners of this or that church from this or that arrondissement. It is, and the stories that I heard, at least, were that the priests brought all the remains down in the middle of the night in black carts. Yeah. Um, so the, the Parisians did not see this actually happening. You know, ultimately it cleaned up the city, and uh, they have nice public spaces around the churches now. And as we travel all over Europe, we've got to remember the churchyards used to be cluttered with uh, tombstones because everybody wanted to be close to the church in, in their death to wait the uh, second coming or his day of uh, salvation or whatever. It was not hygienic, and it was congesting things. In the age of uh, revolutionary time, when, when people were being so logical and less emotional and people were even questioning whether religion made sense at all, uh, Napoleon said, we've just got to unearth all these stupid graveyards and get them outside of town or, or move them out. And that really made a big change on what we see in Europe today. My wife and I, basically, our scary part was trying to get out with all these crystallized oh, yeah. skulls and everything. But Now, now you had an experience in the Père Lachaise Cemetery also? Oh, um, well, to me, that cemetery is just amazing. But I saw the most eerie, I guess it's a mausoleum, but they're all eerie there. I mean, it's such beautiful artwork. But there's one, it's... Uh, the family Raspale? Raspale, yes. Where it's just a normal-sized mausoleum. But we were there um, close to sunset. There's like a granite or marble figure in mourning mm. that has its hand up on the mausoleum. It's a full-size figure, and it's just totally draped in um, what would look like mourning rags. And it's uh, But it's out of stone. It's out of stone, yeah. and there's there's no face. You know, that's that's a whole art style that I've noticed in cemeteries around Europe. It's sort of late 1800s, I think, and it's this Belle Epic or Art Nouveau something, or I don't know what, but it's very super emotional. 
The National Cemetery in Milano is really great that way. And, of course, in Paris, the ultimate cemetery is the one you're talking about, Père Lachaise. And we've even got a guided tour of that cemetery in our book that's that's very popular because you go there and you can see, you know, Jim Morrison and Frederick Chopin and, and uh, lots of Oscar famous... Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde. He's the one that's covered with uh, lipstick, isn't he? Uh, yes. I, I myself didn't kiss it. My wife thought about it, but she thought, doesn't look too hygienic, you know. But you but, can wander around forever in that place, and it can be spooky. But especially when you get up into more of the um, the World War II survivors, the Holocaust survivors. And up into oh, and the there's Jewish powerful stuff from the Holocaust and World War II. A lot of heroics and a lot of memorials there. Jerry, thanks for your call, Jerry, and stay safe this scary time of year, okay? Well, it's actually Halloween is my birthday, so it's kind of oh. a fun one, too. <laughs> then you'll be okay. <laughs> That's a good okay, one. Okay, happy travels. And Michael's on the line in Raleigh, North Carolina. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. Uh, we were uh, doing the, sort of the Luther's uh, footsteps uh, tour in, uh, in Germany, going to Wittenberg and Eisenach and Wartburg Castle and so forth. We were uh, visiting the site just north of uh, Erfurt, where Luther was uh, supposedly hit by lightning, and when he prayed to uh, the saint and vowed that he would become a monk if he was saved, and kind of hard to find, but a very nice little park, very small with some monuments and, and a nice grove of trees, very nice little spot. And a few nights later, we were camping, and uh, we were in a terrible, terrible thunderstorm. You know, we were in a dome tent with my wife and son, and it was raining and uh, lightning and thunder. And I've, I've never been in a thunderstorm this, this strong or the thunder and lightning so close. So that could was, scare you into the arms of the Lord. Uh, we survived, of course, and I didn't vow to become a monk <laughs> afterward, but you could really feel... You could imagine uh, what somebody 500 years ago that really was, in those days, the weather was, was God angry or something ex- like that. Exactly. I mean, you could really feel that in that thunderstorm. Yeah, people who don't know the story of Martin Luther, how he really got serious about his, his uh, mission on this planet, that lightning storm was quite pivotal, wasn't it? He was going back to Erfurt to, to go to law school, Huh. which uh, his father uh, wanted him to, to be, a, be a lawyer, yeah. not a monk. And hmm. uh, that was the pivotal point that uh, he continued on into effort and walked into the monastery instead of the, uh, instead of the law school. I don't want to draw too much into that, but had that lightning not occurred, every Christian today might still be Roman Catholic. That's a, a big thought, possibility. Thought-provoking. All right, Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you. Oh, boy, when you go to Europe, you need more than a money belt sometime. The place is crawling with ghosts. Thanks for your calls. This is Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves. Happy Halloween. Zig, 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 la mort rentre dans ce frappant d'une tombe avec son talon. La mort à minuit joue un aide et danse. Zig, zig, zag sous son violon. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Boo! <laughs> My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.